Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. Depending on who you ask, the first ever battle took place in the year 1274 BC between Egyptians and Hittites in what is now southern Syria. Others might say that the first battle took place at Tel Megiddo in modern Israel in the year 1457 BC. Others will tell you the Sumerians and Elamites of ancient Mesopotamia fought the first war around 2700 BC, and still others contend that the first war for which we have historical evidence took place in Sudan around 15,000 years ago. But the truth is, no one knows when the first war was fought, probably because humans have been fighting them forever. Here's the good news. Since the great global conflicts of the 20th century, wars have become a lot less deadly, even more so after the end of the Cold War in 1991. But the bad news? Since 2011, when the Arab Spring started, wars have become a lot more frequent, often a lot harder to resolve. According to the International Rescue Committee, the average war in 1950 had been ongoing for five years, and the average war today is nearly 20 years old. That might be because conflict is so cyclical. You know, war begets displacement, displacement begets poverty, poverty begets disillusionment, and disillusionment begets, you guessed it, more war. So in many cases, building peace means has to mean stopping war before it can ever start. But where to begin? That's why I wanted to have on Ambassador Rick Barton. He's the founding director of the Office of Transition Initiatives at the U.S. Agency for International Development, former Deputy High Commissioner of the United Nations Refugee Agency, a former Assistant U.S. Secretary of State, among many, many other titles. And best of all, he joins me next. Hi, Ambassador. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So we're talking about conflict and peace building today. And uh, I don't mean to flatter too much, but I really don't know that there's a better person in the world to chat about this with. So by way of introduction, can you just walk us through your career in diplomacy? <laughs> sure. Well, thank you first for the kind words. I, I, I hope it's a growing universe of people, first off. That's the only chance we have is to have more peace builders in the world and and to have this almost become an industry, because in a place like Washington, until it's industrialized, they won't be noticed. And uh, right now, it's still too many individuals and, and some good causes. But I got very, very lucky. Uh, this is was a natural interest of mine that I was recruited to start a new office at USAID called the Office of Transition Initiatives in the early, in the mid 1990s. And that was kind of a golden era for small, uh, for fairly big wars in very small places that didn't, that they were not overly subscribed. So you could be creative, you could get involved with it. Um, and so I worked in my very first year, I worked in Haiti, Bosnia, uh, Angola, and Rwanda. So I got a really pretty good look at some very different kinds of conflicts <clears throat> and uh, was able to uh, had some liquidity being at AID at the Agency for International Development. And so we could really go in and try things from anything from communications to to community organizing, to working with police, former military, whatever it happened to be, whatever the central political development issue of the place was. From there, I got I was the deputy high commissioner for refugees at the UN in Geneva, uh, UNHCR. And then uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, recruited me to be the first uh, assistant secretary of state for conflict and stabilization operations, which really put me 
uh, uh, back in Washington at the center of an effort to really expand this field uh, within our most traditional parts of the of the U.S. government. My personal mission is really to advance peaceful democratic change, and I would not have refined that mission if I hadn't had a chance to do this work. And it's quite a quite a uh, uh, special opportunity when American taxpayers and international organizations will support you in doing this work. So I want to try to answer two broad questions in this conversation. The first being, why has the trend towards global peace started to reverse? And the second being, what what can be done about it? Uh, But first, let's get aligned on this. I mean, is there more conflict today? And how do we quantify this reversal of the of the trend towards peace? I work on the number that at any one time there are 25 sort of ongoing conflicts from low grade to red hot uh, in the world. And I think we're at about that number now. But we've but when you get a bigger, bigger case, and we just we pretty much have have ended the Afghanistan conflict. I mean, there are still some violence there and there's oppression and there but there's not the full scale combat that we saw for years and, and the same thing for Iraq where so we had we had a, a superpower, the United States, directly involved. Now we've got the Russians directly involved in attacking their neighbors. And we've we've thought of our efforts as being interventions, as helping to resolve a a, a, a threat to the United States, but a local localized problem mostly. Um, but uh, but we've had some you know terrible terrible uh, bloodletting because I mean in the in a case like Ethiopia, six hundred thousand people. <clears throat> Died now. They didn't die from the conflict, but they died from the malnutrition and the lack of care and the bad and the bad health, uh, the disease that spreads when a conflict like that uh, uh, takes over a country. Um, so and and then even even a, a a sort of the gang violence of a place like Haiti produces six hundred people a day who are dying of malnutrition. Six hundred a day. You know, whether it's getting worse or not is almost beside the question. It's terrible. We, we, there are things that could be done, and we don't need to concede uh, concede to those people who are willing to use violence uh, to foment change. There are lots of ways of advancing political political change, but we're going to have to get more constructive. And I think, I think there, there's a certain impatience. Uh, which is part of it. And there's an inattention as well. The United States right now, because of Afghanistan and Iraq, is actually quite exhausted. And so we used to, we, we were one of the forces in the, in the world to do, to doing, for doing something. And if we went to the Security Council, we could count on the Russians and the and the Chinese to pretty much be opposed to it. Well, now they're really opposed to it. And we're reluctant to move. The other two members, the permanent members of the Security Council, France and, and England, really don't move without the United States. So if the United States isn't pushing and willing to do something, and you have that resistance from the Russians and the Chinese, and then there are places that are just kind of falling between the cracks right now that we've just conceded, well, maybe it'll just get worse, or maybe the dumpster fire will burn itself out. So those are all elements that make us feel as if things are 
are are peaking again, uh, and it's and it's quite and it's it's definitely worthy of our attention. So I, I want to throw a couple theories at you, popular theories about why uh, peace is so hard to build. Why you know after after millennia of fighting wars, we still can't seem to stop. Uh, and, and the first theory, and, and you know, as a former American diplomat, I think. Uh, you place a, a pretty high premium on the United States' role in the world. And the first theory says that that the United States has played an important role in shaping global peace, at least in the decades since the end of World War II. What do you, what do you make of that? I think that's fair. I think we've been a, a generally constructive force. I think when we've, when we've led with our military, we haven't been as successful as we might have been. I think we had a balance of, of military and diplomacy and development and and communications and so-called soft power um, that was a really wonderful mix. And that mix is not as rich right now in the, in the U.S. government. So I think when we when we use all of our tools of our incredible society, we are a much more uh, constructive player. Uh, but we've got to be creative. It's not just about putting boots on the ground. Okay, here's the, here's the second theory. And it, it, it says that one of the things that helped keep the lid on global peace in the years after World War II was that there was this great power competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So we've talked a little bit about the U.S. We have to also talk about the, the Soviet Union, or at least its successor, Russia. Can, can Russia's recent behavior help explain the proliferation of conflict around the world? Well, I think it helps, but I think the, the natural withdrawal of the United States after Iraq and Afghanistan leaves a vacuum as well. And, and uh, one thing about scoundrels is they're, they're not slow to learn. So they, if they see somebody getting away with something in Liberia or wherever it happens to be, they feel, well, that's a pretty, that's kind of a clever new toy. I saw that a lot. Um, people copycatting Milosevic out of out of out of uh, former Yugoslavia, or copycatting Charles Taylor out of Liberia, and so I think right now there's a little bit of the copycatting going on, and people realize, oh, hey, this might be a good moment for me to do something without anybody really caring, and my, the access to arms and weaponry is pretty great. It doesn't take a huge body politic to get sucked into into war. It's not like everybody in a country wants war, but you have these militaristic leanings as the Japanese had going into World War Two. Obviously, the Germans did as well. And uh, but that so there are people who are willing to use violence and conflict to advance their political objectives. And we've got to be really careful about them, and we've got to isolate them faster and get earlier warnings about them. I, I think, to some extent, when when Gaddafi in Libya, I mean, he was kind of a, a strange leader, but I do think when the United States bombed his one of his uh, uh, encampments, one of his one of his desert encampments, that it gave him a very direct message that, oh. This is going to cost me my family and, and people that really matter to me. I think we could have possibly done something similar to uh, in in Syria, and uh, Assad would have would have uh, would have understood because I think he was a highly rational human being. We're not dealing with highly rational human beings everywhere, but I do think that sometimes 
those signals are important. Here's here's another theory. It says that as as the U.S. becomes less willing to deploy military and diplomatic resources to resolving conflicts, other emerging or middle powers step in to fill the void, uh, like Turkey or Iran. What do you think about that? Sure. Well, the Libya, the Libya conflict is a is, has turned into a kind of a practice field for medium-sized powers to test out their, and it, it hasn't been. By the way, it hasn't been that successful for them. I don't think. I don't think the Turks have gotten a great reward from it. I don't think the Egyptians have either, unless you just think that kind of a permanent state of, of disruption is a good thing. So um, I, I do think that that happens as well. I mean, that's that's uh, that's why these international bodies are good because they give medium-sized powers a presence, a voice. A vote. They don't have the Security Council vote, but they they can really uh, be treated almost as equals, and uh, and that's that that I think is useful as a way of diffusing tension. Today's show is sponsored by Babbel. Going on vacation is great, but exploring the world like a local is even better. And not speaking the language is no longer an excuse. Babbel offers 10-minute lessons designed by real language experts focused on conversational skills in 14 languages so you can learn a language in three weeks and board your next flight abroad with confidence. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Okay, now to solutions, which I think is a place that you feel much more comfortable. Uh, the, the political environment in the U.S., as we've talked about it, is becoming less tolerant to using the military as a means to, to build peace. The same is true in other Western countries. We saw France pull out of the Sahel where it was doing counterterrorism operations last year. How can peace-minded actors support conflict resolution without military intervention? Well, I think, I mean, first off, the public's got to be involved. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to go to war, and it's hard to make peace unless you really have some some public engagement. And I do think that one problem that we've had with our foreign policy elites, um, and that and that would be our national security. That would be everything intelligence. Uh, defense, the Congress, um, is that they treat this, uh, the State Department, obviously, AID, the development people, humanitarians even, is they treat a lot of this international stuff as, as if it's brain surgery or or rocket science. And therefore, they really, they've, they kind of talk down to the American public as opposed to Hey, look! This is a complex case. We could actually make a difference. We probably—it's probably going to require this. What do you think? And so, right now, we have almost the, uh, for the U.S. We have almost a zero tolerance for the loss of life. If somebody—if if, if one person gets killed, it's an American has died. Uh, in this situation, and I, I'm not making the argument that we should be sacrificing human beings, but right. I do think that that these are high, high, high risk places, and sometimes uh, you, you've got to you have to take the risk if you want to make a difference. So bringing along the public is really a central piece of this. Then having the then having the mindset that. We don't have to just because it didn't work before doesn't mean we have to fail again. But that also means that we have to find other ways of doing these, of taking action. And I've I've felt for a long, long time that 
for example, communications is one thing that the United States should dominate. In, in my work, we used television very aggressively in Indonesia to help diffuse the situation. We used it ex really to great effect in Nigeria to show a country, uh, the most populous country in Africa, uh, over 160 million people, that you can resolve problems without violence. I mean, we turned that into a popular television show that people would watch every week, and they they would they would talk about it on their on their radio talk shows, and they would um, they would uh, see advertisements throughout the week for that series. And it was again produced and and directed by well, we were the producers of it, but they directed and the editorial content completely in the control of of Nigerians. That uh, that can be done, and that's a way that you can really start to move the public, and so they're not they don't get entrapped by by the by the over oversimplified version of of why we're fighting with each other because it's not it's hardly ever tr just tribal, or hardly ever religious, or hardly ever just economic. I believe in the kind of a witch's brew model. Is that you? You mentioned this a bit, but is there still a place for military intervention in the peace builders toolkit? And and with that. Could you talk about your rule of 100? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the rule of 100 is, I mean, it's a little facetious, but not really, because if my argument is that if we're going to, if before you send an American soldier into place, you should be sure that you know at least 100 local people. And I don't mean just the president and his personal secretary. I mean, actually 100 people on the ground. Now, we got to know 100 people on the ground pretty well in a place like Afghanistan and Iraq, but well after, well after we'd probably made the intervention. And so you got to know what you're doing. I mean, these are big, tough, tough, tough places, and they're complicated. Uh, as they, as they, as, as if somebody came into my neighborhood in Washington, they would find it complicated, and and I could hide in a lot, a lot of ways. Um, so you don't want to have your young soldiers disadvantaged and you don't want to have to put thousands of thousands of them on the ground just for them to be safe so i happen to believe that there are a lot of different combinations uh in, at one time in haiti when we were first involved there probably the safest parts of haiti were were being patrolled by about a dozen teams of about a dozen special forces. They were covering an entire department of the country. But people knew they were there, and they knew they were a superior force, and they knew if they messed with them, it would probably not be good. Um, and that was it. So not a particularly violent place, but it had gotten out of hand. And uh, so you can, you can do that, but then what do you do with that military intervention? Because the military intervention doesn't secure, isn't sustainable. And as a democracy, you don't really want to be keeping soldiers on, a, on the ground forever. Um, it's just not a good idea. It's not good for our democracy. It's not good for what we're trying to uh, instill in a place. I'd love to know where your Washington, D.C. hiding place is. I, I've been <laughs> brainstorming some of my own. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think one thing that, that this underscores is that one of the most important things to pursue as a peace builder is local security. And, and one way to do that is by cooperating with local security forces, can you can you talk a little bit about your work in Haiti? Yeah, well, ongoing work, I should say. It, as you as you know, the the situation in Haiti is out of control, um, and it's basically been a proliferation of gangs who were probably initially sponsored by by sort of some of the country's elites. 
political business elites. It got out of control as it often does because young young guys don't like working for other young guys, and uh, they found they could they could be more entrepreneurial on, on their own, and they could become rock stars or rap stars on their own just by leading the gang. So that's the situation. Over half the country is now controlled by these gangs. Half the people of the country, not the not the geography, but certainly the greater Port-au-Prince area where. The government, what exists in the government probably controls maybe 10% of the, of the, so if you're controlling 10%, it's, it means you can't go from one place to another. So there's no freedom of movement. But when you talk to hate, when you talk to the Haitians, the best informed Haitians, they, many of them uh, resist having outside help because the history of outside help has been sort of a, a continuation and extension of colonialism. And the only country to really invade them in the last hundred years was guess who? The United States. So, so they're, they're, they're not going to, they can't overcome uh, a U.S. force. But when we, we've typically gone in there, we've sent tons and tons of, we've sent thousands of soldiers at the same time. And then it became an occupation, and that's a and that was a very dangerous thing. So, how do you put the Haitian people at the front of their own recovery of their own reinstitution of public safety? And the, there's only one instrument for doing that right now, and it's not a perfect one. It's the Haitian police. Now that we we helped to rebuild the Haitian police, but we underbuilt it. So for in a country of about 11 or 12 million people, they supposedly had 14,000. They probably have about 9,000. And of those, many of them don't get paid or they don't get paid well enough. At the same time, you have 75,000 private security guards that people that everybody's hiring private security because that's the only way they can they can survive. So but that that could be an instrument of community policing. If everybody's already spending all this money, $5,000 per private security guard per year, that's a lot of money. That's a ton of revenue that could go into paying for the police. And you might also be able to use some of these private security people to supplement the police, not to go out there as SWAT teams. You don't want them doing the high-end stuff, but providing some safety. On the other hand, for the police to re reinstate public safety so that you could, there's some freedom of movement, some freedom of, of assembly, some freedom of speech, and, and to get away from this intimidation that is so long uh, uh, marked Haiti, they probably need some outside help. And now, I believe if the United States were to put in 50 special force types, SWAT teams, that that would generate probably 100 to 200 Canadians and probably another 100 Jamaicans and others. And that would be plenty to at least liberate the police, back up the police to the point where they could then do their job. Right now, they can't do their job. I believe 80 percent or so of the, of the Haitian gang members would probably defect in a minute if they thought they were encounter, encountering a superior force, which needs to happen. But... There's going to have to be there are going to have to be more police. They're going to have to be decentralized, so you don't have the threat of a national police force taking over the government, which is, of course, the pattern of other places. So, so it's there's, it's got to be thought through, but it doesn't have to be the failed model that we have pursued for a hundred years. I'm sure you did a lot of these sorts of exercises at OTI and CSO, and if not, I'm going to take you back to to grade school and give you a little bit of a, a pop quiz here. Uh, but when you consider 
a conflict like the one emerging in Sudan between uh, two warring factions. And, and emerging might be the keyword here because it hasn't yet turned into an all-out civil war. How would you go in and, and approach the, the peace-building process there? Boy, that's really a good question. I and mean, if I had the answer, I'd, I'd probably, you wouldn't be the only one calling me, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I do think that it's a, for the moment anyway, it's a professionalized conflict. It's not, it has not captured the imagination of the Sudanese public. From what I gather, the Sudanese public is, is heading for the exits. So they're 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 sheltering wherever they can, and they're not so they're not caught up in the good guys versus bad guys. Um, but it's pretty much the natural outgrowth of several multiple decades of totalitarian rule, of of massive disrespect and killing of their own people, whether it was in Darfur or in South Sudan. One of the things that I dislike about the strong, so-called strongman theory of, of stability is that it almost never leads to something good. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Sometimes it takes 20 years. Sometimes they stay in power for 40 years. But you can go around the world wherever there's been that kind of model, and it's usually been a, a very, very disruptive. There, there tends to be uh, a, a, another person waiting in the wings to become that same strongman. That that creates a, a perverse incentive, right? Yeah. So it's so it's just a bad way to, to and and so I think you know we have a lot of people now in our in our foreign policy uh, debate that say, well, we shouldn't be pushing our values and our democracy and whatnot. And I, I would, I, I disagree with that. I think if you don't do that, you, you're basically, basically going to look at a century of chaos and, you know, I, I'd much rather deal with, with a very tough problem, which is how do we, how do we avoid war with China? Uh, which would probably be the end of the, of the planet, um, as opposed to have that have all of our energy there rather than dealing with these dozens of of outbreaks that that risk huge loss of life and great and produce great movement of people and many other stresses that in turn keep us from dealing with probably the critical problems like climate change and and uh, and how we how we uh, find a a common system of rules and laws and rules and behaviors that uh, China and the United States both follow with great, yeah. with great dedication. Well, well, on that, I mean, I, I think, like you said, that the, the U.S. is sort of distracted by these two bigger questions, and, and not to mention the, the war in Ukraine. And, and one thing that I've noticed is that as global power becomes more diffuse, we talked a little bit about the role of middle powers, there's a potential for more conflict. But there's also a potential for more peacemakers. Uh, you know, we saw the the European, the African Union rather, helped mediate the conflict in Ethiopia, and just this week, uh, actually today, as we're recording, South Sudan helped negotiate a week long ceasefire in Sudan. So, is there a value in looking outside the West as traditional peacemakers? Sure, sure, I think there is, and I think it's. It was interesting that Iran and Saudi Arabia um, have kind of reopened their their dialogue 
with the help of China, which was, I think, really unexpected. Um, it's hard to tell how uh, how long lasting it will be, but I, I don't. I think having those two uh, countries, basically superpowers of their region uh, or their subregion engaged in dialogue has got to be better than they're being engaged in, in war over Yemen, over Syria, over wherever it happens to be. So um, I, do, I do think that there's room. Um, there's going to have to be refinement. And the United States still has a really important and influential role because there are many, many countries who really will not move without a kind of a U.S. engagement of some kind or other. So it's not. it doesn't mean that we can walk away, but I think it does mean that there's more of a shared responsibility. Generally, I like, I like uh, having broader responsibility. Ambassador, two, two more questions. Uh, the world celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement uh, last month, which created a lasting peace on the island of Ireland after decades of sectarian violence. What lessons do you take away from that? You know, how can peace become durable the way that it has in Ireland? Well, it's always fragile. So just to make sure that we don't over celebrate it. But but the I think it, this is a classic case of the good of the you know, not of the of the good being acceptable as opposed to perfection. And I feel a little bit the same way about the about the the Bosnian war that. It, for a couple of decades, it's kept people from killing each other, and it has brought great, great elements of normalcy to the lives of average citizens. I do think that uh, George Mitchell's model of negotiation was a really fabulous one because he really did put it on the locals, and he just listened to them and listened to them and listened to them rather than coming up with a solution right off. And that, that's not unlike a good personal relationship. If somebody presents a problem to you, they don't always want you to solve it for them right away. Many, many times they want you to hear it. And I think in the Northern Ireland case, George Mitchell, everybody in the room with George Mitchell knew that he was the, that he was the most accomplished person in the room. And they started to get a little bit embarrassed telling their favorite stories over and over and over again. So when he finally did call the question, they were like, phew, boy, we, 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 I don't have to tell my story one more time. <laughs> and I think that that level of patience was effective. Obviously, Richard Holbrook's approach in, in the Bosnia war was much more knock the heads, um, get them to move on and uh, tell them what they're going to do, whether they like it or not. And that was, I think, effective as well. So there are a lot of different ways that you can do this. But I think you've got to be open to the local culture and the local the local players and see. Uh, see what has to happen, and uh, you know we don't always get a mediator. We don't always get a clear winner uh, from a, a conflict. Uh, so ambiguity is is something you got to be comfortable with, and that then gets back to our tolerance for risk, uh, because these are risky, risky places, and we're not always going to win in a classic sense. Right. Last question on the individual and, and the state level, and this could either be interpreted, I, I imagine, as diplomacy advice or relationship advice. Uh, what virtues make a good peace builder? Well, I think I think a ton of curiosity. I mean, you really have to be uh, curious about what's going on in, in in the place and with people and why they behave that way. I think uh, 
a high tolerance of of human foibles because we all have them, but now they've gotten into extreme state. I think uh, creativity, because obviously this is pretty well well worn uh, territory. A lot of people have have tried to have made have worked at the, any one of these problems, and they haven't really come to a, a solution. Um, acceptance of of compromise uh, is important. You know, I mean, I when I think of my own case. I think that one of the qualities that I have that that probably is underestimated is that is persistence. That I really stay with something, uh, sometimes long after uh, others have lost interest, and I attribute that to being the youngest of three boys. And that, so I had like a my, the first ten years of my life was a, was a nonstop losing un, uninterrupted losing streak, and so but I always had one line which let's play again let's play again let's play again let's play again. So my brothers were would know that beating me was was going to be temporary. At some point, I turned the corner. <laughs> I'm also the youngest uh, the youngest brother, and I'm sure we share many of the same bruises on our arms and have learned over the years that uh, a lot of times it's brain rather than brawn that wins the day. So thank you so much, Ambassador, for your time. All right. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. Much the same way violence is cyclical, peace can be too. You know, security leads to development, development leads to economic opportunity, and economic opportunity creates hope. No one goes to war if they have hope. I won't keep you any longer with some sappy or saccharine outro, but I think it's worth reflecting and celebrating the fact that in a world where so many resources, so much time, and so many brilliant minds are dedicated to the industry of making war, there are people like Ambassador Barton who work persistently and patiently to make peace. Now, that job is is never done. It never has and never will be. But I, for one, am happy that there are people like Ambassador Barton who toil endlessly, endlessly with the impossible on the small chance that someone's life in some corner of the globe will get a little more hopeful. All right, I can see your eyes rolling. So if you like this show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. Or as always, tell a friend, friends even, about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. (laughs) 